Amen. Let's show our appreciation for those children's ministry workers. Appreciate them. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. As many of you uh, will know, uh, Pastor Rob actually just mentioned it in uh, the announcement video. We were supposed to have Pastor Shadrach with us today, our main um, pastor training partner in Africa. And uh, due to some visa issues, we were forced to defer his travel until November, so you can look forward to that. But as a result, we had a free week between uh, the end of our Sermon on the Mount series, which we finished last week, and the start of our series on Acts, which we're starting next week to coincide with our relaunch Sunday. And uh, given that we have an induction service planned for tonight anyway, and I was already having a hard time uh, deciding what passage from 2 Timothy I would use to, to give a charge uh, to our, our incoming pastors, I just decided not to choose at all. And uh, we'll cover both halves today of uh, 2 Timothy 2, the first half this morning and the second half later this evening. So Rob and Matt should be well and truly inducted uh, by the time we reach the end of this day. Uh, but the rest of us need to pay attention as well. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on this chapter, said Paul's statement applies to everyone but in particular to ministers of the Word. That's important for us to hear. Of course, what the Bible says to parents and grandparents is not significantly different than what it says to pastors and elders. Uh, we're all involved in this work of the ministry, aren't we? We're all involved in the process of making disciples. We're all involved in stewarding and passing on the Christian faith, uh, regardless of the context. So all of us need to be paying attention, uh, particularly Pastors Matt and Rob. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 2 Timothy, as I'm sure you know, is almost certainly the last letter ever written by the Apostle Paul. It was written in Rome from prison shortly before the Apostle Paul was executed by beheading just outside the city during a short but intense period of persecution that occurred under the Emperor Nero. The letter is addressed to Timothy, Paul's beloved son in the faith. Paul had first encountered Timothy in the city of Lystra on his first missionary journey and then recruited him to be a traveling companion and assistant on his second missionary journey. You can 
Read about all that in Acts chapters 14 through 16. The two worked closely together for the remainder of Paul's life and ministry. Uh, There was uh, an amusing meme floating around the interweb uh, last week. Um, I don't believe I've ever shared an amusing meme from the interweb, but today feels like a good day to start. Um, it, It rather accurately summarizes all Pauline New Testament epistles. I think we have it for you. Do we have it? General Pauline, well, maybe we don't have it, and you'll just have to be amused by me reciting it. Uh, General Pauline letter outline. So here's how all the letters of Paul go. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. That would have been a lot funnier to see than to hear. <laughs> it was funny nonetheless. And of course, it, it rings true, doesn't it? Paul and Timothy were lifelong colleagues in the work of the ministry. And so here, as Paul comes to the end of his journey, he wants to buttress his young friend for the challenges that lie ahead. And so what we have here really is a master class in Christian ministry. Here in chapter 2, the apostle speaks about the fuel of Christian ministry, the essence of Christian ministry, the cost of Christian ministry, the look of Christian ministry, and the law of Christian ministry. And we'll spend our time this morning looking at each of those in their turn. So we begin with the fuel of Christian ministry. Look at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The fuel of the Christian ministry is, of course, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. What else could it be? We can't do these things in our own strength. We cannot merely rely on talent and intellect. This is ultimately a spiritual enterprise. And so Paul tells Timothy to make sure that his tank is full of the fuel that he needs to finish the race that is set before him. I very much appreciate that approach. There's an old saying uh, that I think we need to bring back into our approaches to parenting. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Have you heard that before? The, The idea is that you have to look at the journey ahead and you have to understand the challenges that the child will face. And you have to prepare the child to successfully embrace each of those challenges. As opposed to what we've taken on, I think, as the role of parents in the last 30 or 40 years, going ahead of the child as a snowplow and removing every potential challenge that they might face. The net result is we have weak children who fail as soon as they're out from under our care. Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. That is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He doesn't pray for an easier calling. He doesn't pray for fewer challenges and difficulties. Rather, he prays for a stronger man. Tells Timothy to grow up in his gospel graces so that he can serve the church usefully and faithfully in the coming hour of need. That's really good counsel. John Stott says helpfully here, Timothy is to find his resources for ministry not in his own nature, but in Christ's grace. It is not only for salvation that we are dependent on grace, but for service also. 
I remember uh, someone telling me this, and I think they had stolen it from someone else, so I don't know who to attribute it to. You know, probably goes back to Billy Graham or, I don't know, somebody. Somebody wiser uh, and, and smarter than me, but it was shared with me through somebody else at my church when I was just starting out. They said to me, your sanctification is the best gift that you can give to this church. Did you hear that? Your sanctification is the best gift that you can give to this church. Interestingly, a couple of years uh, later, though I believe at the same church, uh, a parent of, of two of my students said something similar to me. Uh, our youth group was exploding at the time. We were a church of about 300, and uh, the youth group had come to represent about a third of that. We had, we had about 100 kids coming out in, in a church that, with the kids included, was 300 people. It was a big deal, and things were going and firing, and one of the parents came to me, and he said to me, he said, I just want you to know, if you fall, you're going to take a lot of our kids with you. And he said, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't see anything in you. I'm not saying I'm worried. I'm just saying you need to understand, two, two of the many kids who look to you as their model, as their mentor, as their teacher are my kids. And so he said, I'm just coming to you and I'm just telling you, if you fall, you're going to take a lot of people with you. Man, that, I'll tell you, that's, that stuck with me for a long time. And I think we all need to hear that. That's, that's true for pastors. I think, aren't we a little bit tired of pastoral failures? And we've been hit hard over the last couple of years. Now, I don't know, to be perfectly honest with you, I've wondered about this. I don't know, is pastoral failure more common today than it was 50 years ago? Or do we just hear about every single instance of it because of social media and 24-hour news? I don't know. I mean, pastors have always been fallen people just like everybody else. But one thing I do know for sure, every time it happens, the people of God suffer. And so I say to parents, I say to grandparents, this is true for them too, right? I mean, grandparents, do you understand that if you give up on your marriage covenant now, it'll be a lot harder for you to share the gospel with your grandchildren later? Do you get that? Dads, do you understand? Moms and dads, do you understand that if you're not being faithful to your spouse, it's going to be very difficult for you to encourage faithfulness to the Lord and your children. They're looking at you and saying, but wait a second, I thought the gospel that you believed in, I thought this Jesus that you were in relationship with, I thought he was like giving you grace so that you could overcome all your own issues, so that you could be gracious and kind and forgiving and patient. Are you telling me that's not true? It's hard to preach through the fog and veil of your own failure. So grow up. Grow in your gospel graces. Become stronger than the temptations of the flesh. Become wiser than the wisdom of the age. Become tougher than the slings and arrows of the evil one. Grow up in your gospel graces. It's not enough to be gifted. Talents can only take you so far. 
If you want to serve the Lord usefully, you need to dredge out your spiritual wells. You need to sink deeper roots into the good soil of the gospel. You need to grow. You need to be people of the word, people of prayer. You need to become oaks of righteousness planted by streams of living water. You need to be ever filled with the Holy Spirit. In this way, and only in this way, will you bless yourself and all those entrusted to your care. All ministry, and this is something I think is hard for evangelicals to understand. I'm, I'm sure we know this, but we sometimes act and speak as if we don't know this. All ministry is incarnate ministry. You know that, right? This is why we don't just uh, bomb villages in unreached areas with copies of the scripture, right? Imagine you're, you're in a village somewhere where they'd, they, they'd never heard the gospel and a, and a book comes out of, a, out of an airplane and strikes you right in the eye. That's unlikely to convert you to the worship of Christ. But if someone were there to open that book and to tell you the story of of God's love and how he created you and who you are as a person and the incredible dignity that you have because of of who you are and of the great lengths that God went to in Christ to save you, remake you, and restore you, that very well, by the grace that God supplies through the Holy Spirit working in our heart, that very well may lead to the complete conversion and change of a nation. All ministry is incarnate. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said famously, preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. The same could be said for every ministry that takes place within the church. The same could be said for every ministry that takes place within a home. Moms and dads, you, you know that if it doesn't look like the gospel has touched your heart, good luck in passing it off to your kids. They need to see it break your heart every once in a while. They need to see how it's changing your life. Every ministry seeks to deliver grace through a man or a woman on fire. It shall become a bigger, stronger, cleaner, purer vessel. Build a bigger fire. Build a bigger fire, and you'll have a brighter witness to the world. From there, the apostle begins to speak to young Timothy about the essence of the Christian ministry. Look at verse 2. He says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. Now, by the way, I should say this more often than I do. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, and you've come out of this culture that is hypersensitive to all issues of gender, you might think, whoa, 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 whoa. Why does it say what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men? Shouldn't that say men and women or, or all people? And so some, sometimes Bible readers, because actually Greek did not have a gender-neutral pronoun. It didn't have gender-neutral words uh, to the same extent that English is developing them. So sometimes you just have to guess. Anthropoi uh, is, is the Greek word that is sometimes translated as men and sometimes as men and women or people. But sometimes we think it is men. In, in this case, we think it is men. Meaning we think the, 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 the primary meaning of what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that he is to continue to recruit men who can serve 
as elders and pastors and, and be the stewards and preachers of the gospel. That's, that's the job of gospel ministers. It's the, gar, the job of elected elders and pastors in this church. We are to guard the gospel from change. Every generation seeks to change the gospel. Every generation has something they don't want to hear from the gospel. And every generation has something they would like the gospel to say that it is not in fact saying. And so there needs to be a group of people who are commissioned to steward the gospel and to pass it on to others. And so most immediately, we, we think that's what Timothy is talking about here, or Paul is saying to Timothy, I should say. First Timothy 5, 17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there is a, a particular focus here. Paul wrote to another pastor under his care, a young pastor named Timothy, and said to him, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He then provided a list of character requirements for them, very similar to the ones that we find in 1 Timothy 3, before going on to say, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers, and deceivers. Pastors and elders are required to exercise the positive ministry of instruction and the negative ministry of rebuke and sanction. They need to be strong enough to say, listen, I know that you like listening to that podcast, or listen, I know that teacher has sold a gajillion books, but that's nonsense, and you need to not have that in your home. And you certainly need not to bring that Here, pity the church, pity the church that has pastors and elders too weak to do that because there are many teachers and leaders out there, wolves in sheep's clothing, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and they will infiltrate and take over the church if they are not shut down and turned away at the gate. And so the Apostle Paul understands that humanly speaking, The health and survival of a church depends upon the maintenance of a strong and faithful plurality of elders. A church that does not have faithful preachers and faithful stewards is on the fast track to decline and extinction. And so we are right to understand the Apostle Paul primarily here, primarily speaking in that sense, is telling Timothy to continue to recruit train and develop gospel preachers and stewards. And yet I think it is also entirely fair and appropriate for us to hear that this morning in a general sense. Apostle Paul has already spoken warmly about the stewardship, the gospel stewardship exercised by Timothy's mother and grandmother. In 2 Timothy 1.5, he said, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. The job for parents and grandparents in the family is exactly the same as the job given to elders and pastors in the church, the household of faith. We are to steward and transmit the gospel. 
we are to pass on to the next generation the gospel that has been passed down faithfully over the centuries. Now, the challenge may vary from season to season and from age to age. The Apostle Paul senses that Timothy may be facing a particularly difficult and hazardous stretch of the road, and therefore he begins to speak to him about the cost of the Christian ministry, beginning in verse 3. He says, "'Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus.'" Paul is returning there to a theme that he introduced in chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. Many commentators understand that as the overarching theme of the entire letter. I mentioned that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy from prison, an imprisonment that led ultimately to his death. And the content of this letter does seem to indicate that Paul had some concerns about Timothy's resolve in light of the new circumstances. In the first generation of the church, Christian leaders really only had to worry about persecution coming at them from one direction— Uh, They regularly faced difficulties and pushback from the Jewish synagogue. If you read the book of Acts, you see that for yourself. Typically, the Apostle Paul would go into a new town when he was trying to uh, break new ground for the gospel, and he would start his preaching in the synagogue. And sometimes he enjoyed a, a, a wonderfully receptive hearing. Many people would come to know Christ. He could stay there for quite some time. But inevitably, Uh, There was division in the synagogue. Maybe, who knows, half the people accepted Christ. Maybe half didn't. Maybe 60-40, maybe 70-30. I'm sure it varied from town to town. But eventually, the synagogue would split over the question of who Jesus was. And Paul and his companions would be evicted, sometimes violently so. Of course, Timothy knew all of that because it happened in his hometown of Lystra, where Timothy was from. First time the Apostle Paul went through, there was a tremendous hearing, a very warm welcome for the gospel. In fact, you may remember it was a little too warm. Uh, After someone had been miraculously healed, people started worshiping Paul as though he were God. However, that didn't last very long. Luke goes on to tell later in the chapter, Acts 14.9, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That happened in Timothy's hometown. Timothy had a front row seat for that. So he knew very well that he was very likely to face opposition from the Jewish synagogue. But now here in the mid-60s AD, they're starting to take fire from another direction, the direction of Imperial Rome. Imperial Rome doesn't throw stones. They chop off heads. They light people on fire. They crucify. So it was a whole new deal. See, up until this point, up until the mid-60s AD, which means for the first generation of Christian ministry, right? Rome actually thought the Christians were just a sect of the Jews. They thought the Jews were having a nice little argument there. Got a little heated, actually, but they were having a nice little argument about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And so they treated all Christians, the vast majority of whom in that first generation were Jewish anyway, they just treated them as Jews having an issue. 
And they were able to, therefore, Christians were able to access the protections that the Jews had won from Rome over the centuries, including freedom of worship, etc. But then all of a sudden, the Romans started to understand that Judaism was dividing and something was moving out from Judaism that was a whole new thing. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that the emperor Claudius evicted Jews from Rome in the early 50s for rioting in the name of Crestus. The Jewish population in Rome was split down the middle over the identity of Christ. And Rome was not amused. Christians kept coming back to Rome and they kept springing up in Rome and eventually they became quite a concern. And the Emperor Nero, the adopted son and successor of Claudius, decided to use the Christians as a convenient scapegoat for the great Roman fire that happened in July of A.D. 64. And he rounded up as many prominent Christian leaders as he could find, and he executed them, generally in gruesome and grisly ways. The Apostle Paul, of course, was one of those people. Peter was as well. Paul knew what time it was. And he knew that Timothy was not of as naturally resolute a character as he was himself. And so he wrote this letter to fortify him in advance of the coming trial. Wise older leaders who can read the signs of the times will often do that. In 2010, retiring Catholic Cardinal Francis George told a group of pastors, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. The cost of faithful Christian ministry is going up, and therefore younger Christian leaders, pastors, elders, parents, too, need to be encouraged in their resolve. Fourthly now, and in support of what we've just spoken about, the apostle begins to describe the essential look of the Christian ministry by means of three overlapping metaphors and two well-known examples. Look at verses 4 to 6. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So there we have our three overlapping metaphors. The soldier, of course, is characterized by focus and resolve. When a soldier is on deployment, he doesn't run for mayor in the town where he is deployed. He doesn't apply for a job at the local car wash. He doesn't bag purchases at the mall. He has one job and one job only. He wants to execute his mission. He wants to please his superior officer so that he can go home. Be just like that. Timothy. Be just like that. In the old Anglican service of ordination, a charge was read to the candidate that said, consider how studious ye ought to be in reading and learning the scriptures. And for this selfsame cause, how ye ought to forsake and set aside as much as you may all worldly cares and studies. Give yourself wholly to this office. Apply yourself wholly to this one thing and draw all your cares and studies this way. Be all in. Now, of course, this doesn't mean you can't have a family or cut your grass. Of course you can. The, the issue is entanglement. 
You cannot be involved in anything that takes away your focus, your devotion, or your loyalty from the call and priority of gospel ministry. You have to be like a soldier in that sense. You have to be like an athlete. The athlete must compete according to the rules. If a soccer player picks up the ball and runs it into the net, he gets a red card, not a goal. In baseball, if you try to hit the ball with a corked bat, you will be ejected. You must use legal equipment, and you must adhere to the rules of play. So it is in the Christian ministry. John Bunyan in of Antichrist and His Ruin said this, The church, therefore, as a church, must use weapons, such weapons as are proper to her as such. And the magistrate, as a magistrate, must use such weapons as are proper to him as such. Bunyan was aware that in seasons of strength and desperation, the church is often tempted to seize the sword out of Caesar's scabbard in order to expedite the growth or to protect the gains of the kingdom. But that is not the weapon that we have been given. We were given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we must wield that weapon if we are to receive our eternal reward. The Christian minister must also be like the hardworking farmer. That's the third of the overlapping metaphors. The farmer wakes up early, has to go out into the field no matter the wind or weather, and so too must the pastor. The Christian ministry is not the place for the lazy person. You need to be early at your Bible. You need to be often on your knees. You need to be steadfast and persevering in prayer. You must be like the hardworking farmer. But if you do, then generally speaking, you will enjoy the first share of the crop. Scholars seem to think that this means both character growth and also conversion growth in your ministry. I see no reason to disagree with that. To complete this picture of the Christian ministry, the apostle appeals to two examples, the example of Jesus and his own example. He says, consider Jesus, remember Jesus, who was risen from the dead, though he was the son of David. Isn't that interesting? He was the son of David. He was the heir to the throne. He, he, he might have expected a cushy upbringing in a palace somewhere. He might have expected adoring crowds alongside every road that he walked in life. But that's not what happened, is it? No, instead, he suffered on the cross. He had to go to the cross before receiving his crown. If that was true for Jesus, how much more will it be for you? How much more for me, Paul says. And of course, his own story illustrated that very well. He says, I am in chains, though thanks be to God, the word is not chained. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal Glory, are you hearing that? And that leads us to the final thing that Paul speaks of here. The law, the law of Christian ministry. Look at verses 11 to 13. I have a trustworthy saying to share with you, Paul says. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, most of the commentators say that what Paul's doing here is he's borrowing a line, a verse from a well-known Christian hymn, and here endorsing it. The basic connection is the idea that endurance leads 
to reward and glory, whereas faithlessness leads to ruin and regret. If we endure, we will also reign. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now, the last line's a bit confusing, right? The last line says, if, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And at first glance, that might sound like the Apostle Paul is denying himself. In the first part of the song, it says, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. But then, whoa, maybe this is an example of you say something scary and then take it right back. Pastors are famous for that. Is, is that is that what Paul's doing here? If we deny him, he will also deny us. Whoa, hold on now. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Is that what's going on? That's not at all what the song is saying. William Hendrickson explains. Faithfulness on his part means carrying out his threats as well as his promises. What Paul is saying is that God is constant. Your faithlessness doesn't change who God is. Everyone in this room could walk away. That doesn't change who God is. If we are faithless, he is faithful. You can bet he's going to do exactly what he said. You can bet that the standard's not going to change. He's not going to be up there in heaven going, oh boy, I've just lost 75% of my people. Better lower the bar. No, 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 no. If we are faithless, God is going to be faithful. So you better get on the right side of that. You better live your life on the right side of that. You better play the long game. Now, the hymn itself that Paul is quoting here, we believe, was inspired by a saying of Jesus recorded in Matthew 10, 32. Jesus said this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Let's just pause there. That's lovely, isn't it? You know, I think one of the things that all of us found encouraging about the queen is that she lived in a time when Christian faith was popular, right? Back in the day, back in the 40s. Back in the 40s, how hard do you think it was for the queen to be an outspoken Christian? I'm guessing not very. 60s and 70s, well, last 20 years, whoa. Wasn't it wonderful that even in her last Christmas speech, she was outspoken, bold, and unapologetic as a follower of Jesus Christ. So how about this? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, did she do that? Well, you bet she did. I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> See, Jesus often said things like this. We talked about this last week. He said, he who builds his house on the rock. We talked about what that means. He who builds his life on the rock, no matter what the storm comes, such a person will endure and enter into eternal life, whereas the one who builds on sand will be washed away. And great will be the fall of that house. You don't have to be a keen Bible scholar to realize that according to Jesus, the difference between false faith and real faith is the matter of endurance. He said that on many occasions. In Matthew 10, he said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Matthew 24, but the, it's the same line. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said this so much it became a Jesus-ism. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance is everything. Storms are going to come. 
Hardships are going to come. Gospel ministers, oh, parents and grandparents. Hardships are going to come. Prison, it's going to come. Executions, all that is going to come. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So stay the course, Timothy. Pay the price. Hold the line. Fulfill your ministry. To quote one last time from John Stott, he says, hopefully here, looking back over the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 13, that we've been looking at this morning, we'll look at the second half this evening. Looking back over the first half of this chapter, the Apostle Paul seems to have been hammering home a single lesson. I hope you got it. From secular analogies, soldiers, athletes, farmers, and from spiritual experience, Christ, his own, every Christian's, he has been insisting that blessing comes through pain, fruit through toil, life through death, and glory through suffering. It is an invariable law of Christian life and service. Let me repeat that last line. It is an invariable law of Christian life and service. Glory through suffering, life through death, fruit through toil, blessing through pain, and all by the grace that God supplies. That is an invariable law of Christian life and service. That is a feature, not a bug. That is your calling. That is your commission. That is your context, brothers and sisters. Oh, God help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? We see challenges ahead. We see hardships ahead. We look inside ourselves, and many of us feel our faith is small. We need to grow. We need to grow quick so as to be prepared to survive and thrive, so as to endure and stand and shine through the season's that appear to be coming. Lord, we can only do that in the grace that you supply. So grow us right now. Grow us in our gospel graces. Help us to sink down deeper roots. Help us to suck up greater strength. Help us to close our minds to debilitating influences. Make us strong for the road ahead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.